2: presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app today and use code DAN for a special offer when you sign up. That's code DAN, only at DraftKings Sportsbook.
0: Hello, welcome to another South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Levitard and the Hall of Famer, Jason Taylor, is someone I've enjoyed talking to for a long time. He is unusually candid and honest about a whole lot of things. I think candid and honest are synonyms regardless. He's both those things. Honest doubled. And the most insightful article I've ever written about NFL pain was with Jason Taylor. I suggest that you look that up. Because you will learn about what it takes, the kind of crazy it requires to be great and excellent at that sport. Great and excellent also synonyms, but that is how I double up his excellence. The Hall of Famer, Jason Taylor. Here he is. Jason, was there anything about getting into the Hall of Fame that caught you totally off guard? Any of the emotions, any of the nostalgia, any of the mortality, any of it?
1: Um, yeah, I guess there's a lot of things that catch you off guard. I mean, it, you you, know, you have a body of work that you feel like stacks up, um, but you really lose control once you retire and, and you wait those five years. You lose control, and it's and it's weird because you know if you're a Peyton Manning or a Tom Brady, you know one of those kind of guys, your body of work speaks for itself forever for eternity. But you you feel like sometimes in the in the positions where. There's not as much limelight or people don't know as much about you or you're not always out there, you're not a quarterback, a receiver, a running back. Those five years, you know, you your your body of work kinda of ages. And not in a good way like a cigar or wine. It just kinda of ages and you get further and further away from the game and people may forget about the impact or the, the game changing plays or the, the splash plays that you made because there's so much more football that happens in those five years. So, you know, the initial knock on the door was you know, I was taken aback. Um You know, I thought in the back of my mind I was a Hall of Famer. I just didn't know if it was going to be a first ballot or if it was going to be years later. So that that was the biggest surprise at the beginning. Um, And then the the way the way people look at you, and you know, having that HOF um, associated with your name, it kind of changes the attitude when you walk in the door. It changes the the aura when you walk into a to a you know an appearance or, or a function. It's just it's just different. And then, you know, you get up there and you get around. At the time, I was 300 and I think I was 308. And you, you sit back and you think, like, and there's been thousands and tens of thousands of players that have played this game. And, you know, you're one of 300 and some people that they decided to put in. It's, uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty humbling.
0: Can you explain, you've always been great at explaining this to the audience, what it took physically, mentally, spiritually, willfully for you to be excellent?
1: Wow. I mean, it, it took everything. It takes years off your life, I think. It takes um, physical functionality as you get older away from you. It takes sacrifice. It takes some insanity. It takes to be a little, you know, we're a little touched. We're a little thrown off in in certain ways. And we we do things that aren't healthy, um, in some ways probably aren't legal, so to speak, aren't, you know, they're, they're not encouraged from medical professionals, from normal people, um, when I say normal, you know, we're all normal, but, but we, we do things that are, we, we're we normal people with extraordinary jobs and we have kind of a weird way of looking at things. Most of us. And, and I think, I think if you take the great ones that they all have that piece and there's plenty of guys that come in this league that are happy to be there. They're there for a cup of coffee or they're there for whatever their motivation is, but to really go out and, and be the best, you got to sacrifice a lot. You got, you have to do a lot. And it's, you know, we all, all hear about the TV 12 process and the things that he does, um, totally different than what what I saw the majority of my career with the guys that I played with the great players that I played with or even myself I mean I, I you know being in the hospital for Thursday through Saturday checking out Sunday morning and going to the stadium to play a game and then checking yourself back in Sunday night it's just stupid
0: well, this is interesting because when I talked to you about it once upon a time because of what it is, the body would hurt more now. When you say years off your life, I know with kids and love and everything else that you have in your life, now your perspective might be different. But back then you were like, I'd do it all over again, every time, all over again because I'm a little off and because this thing, there's nothing like it for your identity, for your ego, for for your adrenaline, for living a life on a higher plane than the rest of us.
1: Yep. Yep. And if you ask the question, when I go back and do it again? Right now. You know, give me five minutes to change and I'll be out in the practice field. It's just I loved every bit of it. I loved every moment of it. But the problem is when you're in it and you're and you're always chasing a championship. And I tell a lot of young kids this now that, you know, as I'm coaching and people are, when I when I talk to them, they, they talk about football. I was always so focused on that destination of winning a championship, winning a Super Bowl and then And then looking forward to the repeat process of trying to get prepared for another one. And I never got there. So when I left the game, the finality of leaving the game, I felt unfulfilled in some ways. I felt like a failure in some ways, like I let down a lot of people in some ways. And I know it's not an individual game, but that's just the feelings you take away from the game when you, when you're so singularly focused on winning a championship. And I didn't enjoy the journey and the process. So if I went back now, which I would do in a heartbeat, Listen, I can't run from here to my car, but if I had the opportunity to play, I would do everything I could to get back out there. But if I had the chance to do it again, I would enjoy the process. I would enjoy the moments that I hated. You know, some of the sometimes you, you know you bitch and you moan about those West Coast trips on a you know a, a prime time game in the West Coast, and you're flying back and you land back in Miami when the sun's coming up and. You know, after a Monday night game, and you're already eating it. You're already eating into your day off, and having to go back Wednesday. You know, you bitch about the training camp days. Um, you know, you bitch and moan about the two-a-days back back when they had two-a-days with Jimmy Johnson. When I wanted to quit, and I, and I thought I couldn't do it anymore. I physically thought I couldn't get out of bed anymore. You know, the injury times, or you know, having to get shot up in, in the in the belly of of uh in Death Valley. We played a, we played at Tiger Stadium against uh. The New Orleans Saints after the hurricane. You know those, those, those moments where you just you're like, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? And, you're, and you get pissed off because you don't win. I need to go back and enjoy those times, those playing trips with the teammates, those those hard times, those fun times. You, the can't, shit talking. you
0: can't enjoy the you can't enjoy the dungeon where you are getting those shots in your foot. This this dank cell of <laughs> of horrible foot pain. That you can't go back and enjoy the physical pain that makes you I think you told us this story. They had to put a towel in your mouth for the shot, the first shot that was just preparing you for the second shot.
1: I know in a strange way, sounds like you can't enjoy that, but I would do it again. Like, I, I just wish I could go do it one more time. You know, put it that way. I wish I could just go do it one more time. And, yeah, that was hell. You know, we're, as I, you know, I think I have told you, you were the first person or probably the only person I told this story to on, on air. You know, just doing things, taking your body places where it really shouldn't go in a game where I probably shouldn't be playing. And there's probably no problem about it. I shouldn't be playing. And some guys wouldn't. And that was just my mentality is I always wanted to be on the field. It wasn't about the pay. You know, you're getting paid to do this. I don't give a shit about that. That's 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 a byproduct of what we get a chance to do. I wanted to be out there. I loved game day. You only get sixteen. Well, now seventeen. You used to only get sixteen of them. Sixteen days out of the year to be great. That's all you need. The rest of the time, you could be a you you know, you can do whatever and and get through practice or miss practice, and then this this whole what do they call it now? This in this new age, uh, load maintenance or whatever. Fucking load maintenance. We didn't have that shit. Like you know, but. I, 16 days out of a calendar year, I need to be go, go be great. And I'll do whatever I can to get to that dirt at 1 o'clock or whatever time we kick it off. So being down – now, first of all, you know, my son signed with LSU, so I had a chance to go back there a few times. I was in the stadium on the home side. The home side is so much nicer than the visitor side, obviously, in every stadium. But whatever that room was that I went in, it had a concrete floor. It had concrete overhead because I think it was part of the bleachers. But the concrete bleachers did not meet the concrete on the floor. So, what would be the wall? I think was like dirt that was like chipping off, and it was musty. It's like an old, like growing up in Pittsburgh. It's like an old basement that's just musty and always has a little bit of moisture to it. And who knows what lived in there before you turn the lights on? That's where I went to get this shot. And and you know we've all been the doctors, dentists. everywhere. you know when you you know I'm I'm scared of needles, but it sounds crazy because I've taken way too many shots in my life. You know, you ask a doctor, hey, is this going to hurt? And most doctors do what? They lie to you and say, oh, no, it'll just be a little pinch. So I asked the doctor, I won't name his name, but I asked the doctor, hey, is this going to hurt? And he's like, yeah, I'm not going to bullshit you. This is going to be the worst pain you've ever felt. So Tony Egwes went and got me a Gatorade towel. I rolled it up, folded it in half, and put it in my mouth, and it was uh, by far the worst pain I've ever had.
0: I've said to people when we have a mental health conversation around football, I've said what those people, and you say we're a little off, what those people have to do for a living would test the mental health of anyone who has ever lived?
1: Yes. Yeah, it would. You know, it's, it's part of the game. Um, but I think it's also individual. It's, it's how far are you willing to push? And some guys, you know, some guys opt out for the COVID year. Some guys opt out of ball games to avoid injury. And I get those. It's, it's different scenarios for everybody. Some guys, some guys get hangnails and don't want to play. Um, you know, we were—I was one in fifteen with Cam Cameron. I probably shouldn't have said that. I'm probably going to shit myself now thinking about it again. But you know, guys were checking out for everything. You know, and but how far are you willing to push yourself? And it's—and if you're—if you're comfortable, you're not in the right place because you have to learn how to play with pain. You have to learn how to play hurt. Injuries are different. They always try to differentiate being hurt from being injured as two different things. Yes, I get that. To me, it was okay. I'm I'm hurt or injured. What do I need? What can I do to get back onto the field? Well, you, we can do this, this, and this. You're going to be at seventy percent. I'm like, well, shit. Me at seventy percent is better than whoever's behind me at a hundred percent. That was just my mindset. So, it's not healthy. It's it's. It, and I think you really need to have people around you that can tell you the truth sometimes, tell you what you don't want to hear sometimes, give you all the options, and then it's up to you to to really to understand that you, you have to deal with this down the road.
0: The man sitting in front of me now, life experience, wisdoms accrued through toughness and lessons would go back and advise you to do what differently at 20, 21, 22 years old?
1: <laughs> Boy, there's so much. And again, I know it sounds simple. I don't want to repeat what I said earlier, but just enjoy it. Just enjoy the process. Enjoy the small times. Enjoy the times where nobody's around, which were which were enjoyable. You know, and the, you know the nights in there where you're you're the last one in the building or when you're in there on, the, you know, on, a, on a Sunday night after a game because you needed to work on something that you, that you felt like you were deficient on during those three hours early in the day. Those times were fine, and, and, and I enjoyed that chase. But the smaller times, the, the, the lessons of losing, the thrills of winning, the thrill of winning a defensive player of the year, um, the thrill of being NFL man of the year, those times are good but they were, to me, at the time, in that moment, they were incomplete because I didn't win a championship. We weren't in the playoffs. You know, I won Defensive Player of the Year but I was sitting at home getting fat, drinking and smoking cigars and playing golf. Like, I should still be playing in January. That's the reason we do all this shit is to play in January, and we weren't doing it. So I would, I would say that because you you can go 15 years. I, I remember I came in the league and Dan played, whatever, 17, 18 years. Marino didn't win the championship, had been to one Super Bowl. And I'm like, there's no way. So I'm like, how can you go through... 17 years in the league and not ever get to a Super Bowl, like it's just math. You feel like the odds because the NFL is so built for parity. Like our times have, has to come around at some point, and I hope I can play long enough. And then you get in the end, and you played 15 years, and you're like, shit, I couldn't sniff the Super Bowl except for one year when I was in New York. We made the AFC Championship game, and it's just you got to enjoy the moment. It's just like life and anything. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy every moment of life because it's so short, and we and we learn more and more as we get older and haven't gone through. You know, the pandemic now and all the things we see like you just got to enjoy it while you have it because it's going to be gone and then you look back and like damn i i wish i had one more beer on the plane or i wish i stood up and air surfed one more time during takeoff you know and in put my $20 bet in on that, you know, just little, the little stupid stuff.
0: What does that take me to what What was happening on the flight?
1: Yeah, I, 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 I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said what, that. What was the, what was the
0: bad <laughs> you knew I was going to ask the follow-up you went to the, the, because you're doing, you're doing a little of the mortality thing. I get this, right? Because the fountain of youth can be a little bit of a, the hall of fame could be a fountain of youth where you get back and you're like, oh man, that was so cool. All the things yeah. that I did, you get nostalgic. You start looking right. back, uh, looking ahead at your career mortality, looking at all of it. I can imagine that you you look back with some fondness, some nostalgia, but also some yeah, some sadness because holy Maybe. shit, did you have a good career?
1: <laughs> I was blessed. I was blessed, and I had a I, you know I had a, I had a good career. I, I made some made some plays, and I had some really good guys around me. And that's the thing, like I you know, and I was I was just listening to a podcast not long ago, actually a few days ago. While I was working here in the warehouse with Larry Chester. And you know, I forget about a guy like Larry Chester. His he was so freaking crazy. Like Larry Chester and Tim Bowens and Daryl Gardner's big ass, and, and Trace Armstrong and Derek Rogers and Zach and Sam and Pat and Brockman. Like all these guys, I'm like, man, we had some great times. And I get around Sam, you know, I had a chance to coach a year with Sam or two years. I get around Sam, and we still laugh and crack about you know what happened, and you know Pat Sertan, and I, I see him all the time and tell stories. It's just. Man, that's that's what those guys. And I know it sounds so cliche and all. Oh, he's trying to be humble. No, those those guys are why it was good. Fuck, if you had Sam and Pat playing press man on the outside, back in the day where they didn't throw a flag when you were at four and a half yards and touching the receiver, those guys used to just they used to just kill people all over the field and give you forever to get there. Like it was it was almost easy once you got to the point where your 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 mental mental part of your game matched your physical. So I, I give a lot of credit to those guys and. That's what you miss the most, man. It's it's, it's being around those guys. You know, it's, it's funny. We were – I forget who I was talking to. Maybe it was Pat not long ago. It was, I was talking to somebody. And it's like the little stupid shit that happens. You know, so on Saturday mornings before you leave for a road game, you know, you go in the facility, you do a walkthrough at 10 a.m. then the plane's leaving at 2. So you got to drive to the airport, meet him at, meet him at the airport at 1.30 for check-in. So, you know, he's a grown-ass man. And it's the same thing for a home game. You know, you go home and get ready. Grown ass man, you're in your closet, you know, and you see guys that get all G'd up and wear suits and, you know, nineteen piece suits and all this shit and ascots or whatever those things are called, all this stuff. You're you're in your closet at home worried about what somebody else on the plane is gonna say about your outfit. Cause you used to have this the walk of death and you had to walk in the front of the airplane and walk all the way to your back seat in the back and everybody would crack on you, no matter what you did. Like times like that, like we were we were joking about it. You know, I'd go out and spend on a suit and then be worried about what the fuck I'm putting on to get on a plane. You know, part of you says like, who cares what they think, but you had to hear it the whole time. So it was just, you know, those times are amazing.
0: What are the roots of your tough?
1: Um, I think growing up in Pittsburgh, um, not, not having a father, not knowing who my dad was and, and, and seeing different, I would say role models, um, mentors, and mistakes it kind of shape that path to keep you keep you out of trouble and on, but still on edge. You know it was never easy, but you know seeing guys struggle and fail, seeing guys make mistakes and go to jail, seeing guys get shot in front of me. You know it's, it's just those kind of things harden you in some ways. They kind of put a little callus on you. But then you know watching my mother struggle and being from a very blue collar area with the, and we didn't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of. You just freaking grind, and you you get used to you get used to walking home in the cold. You get used to walking up the hill from school in the snow and in third grade. You get used to doing it. You know, and having to I don't want to say fight to survive because there's guys that had it worse, but it wasn't easy. And one thing I always was was competitive as hell. Oh. Now I sucked early on. I couldn't win a fight to save my life till I was in I think I was in fourth or fifth grade. You know, getting my ass whooped, but. You, know, you whoop my ass, I'm going to try to find you the next day because that, that competitive juice would I had to get some get back. And then I'd find you the next day and I'd get my ass whooped again. I would go home and think about it, come back the next day and be like, I probably shouldn't fight you, but let's try this one more time. You know, and that happened until I finally won a fight in fifth grade. And then, you know, it's just, you're just fighting to survive. You're just fighting to, to get out of where you are because you know there's something else out there. I was a big Steeler fan. I want to be a Pittsburgh Steeler. I want to be, you know, Michael Jordan in the, in the Chicago Bulls because Pittsburgh didn't have a, a basketball team but how do I do that? I didn't have direction, but I always had to drive. I always had to fight in the drive because I was always a small kid. I was a, I was a runt and, and a, in kind of a dork and nobody didn't have a whole lot of friends and all that
0: shit, but it was fine. Is that why you were getting beat up?
1: I was getting beat up. Cause I was a, I was just not very, I was just not very strong and didn't know how to fight, but I had a, I had the mentality where I wasn't going to take anything off of anybody, but I just wasn't there yet. I was just small. So my sister used to fight for me all the time. My older sister and, and again, so I think I was in fifth grade. I won a fight against. I hate to put it out there, Charlie, but Charlie. Ba- Charlie Batch was the first person I beat in a fight. Um, we went to the same elementary school, and I don't even know what we were fighting about because we were we were really good friends. And uh, that was I forget the name. I used to have. I used to know everything, like the name of the two cross streets. Like because it was it was a it was a moment in my life. Like it was this was this was it. I'm I'm arriving. But we got in a fight there at a street corner, and and. Uh, I think I pushed him in the bushes, and as he got up, I was like, oh, shit, I don't have to throw these hands. And he came at me and threw a few hands, and, and I, I don't know if I for, – for the sake of the story, I dropped him, and that was my first win.
2: My team is one win away, and I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge, and I'm going to get myself an ice-cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975 and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brew & Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.
1: Get ready for the
0: greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Where and how that came to be, because I would imagine that you can endure a great, great deal more pain than I can.
1: You know, I don't know where it came from. It's always—I I guess it's been there. And I guess when you get your ass beat enough, you, you learn how to live with pain. You learn how to deal with pain and try to try to overcome that adversity. But um, you know, I've just always had a high a high threshold for it. You know, I, I hate missing. I hate missing anything. I, I I'm a very I'm a very uh you know i've never been diagnosed but i think i'm a very ocd in some way add kind of guy or you know kind of guy that just always has to have something and want to keep going i don't want to be i don't want to be out with a sickness i don't want to be out with covid i don't want to be out with a flu i don't want to be out with sniffles or anything or an injury so i was always that way just i always pushed my body past where it needed to be and there was there was instances that growing up that you know i was put in some very you know a- adverse situations um that you are literally fighting to survive. And, you know, in those hardships, you, you know, you, you, your body gets, your body and your mind get you through those things. So it was easy when I got the football, you know, when I got to playing football and, you know, you have a knee injury or you have a, you have a messed up shoulder or whatever it may be. Um, it, was, it was easier for me to tap back into, I, I know I can take my body further than anybody else that I'm looking at, or most of the guys that I'm playing against. and. I always took great pride in showing up.
0: You always, I don't know, whenever we have these longer conversations, you always end up going, visiting that dark space in your childhood and then stopping short of actually going to the details that would inform how you became who you became. There's something there. I don't mean to press you, but it seems like you always get to the doorstep of that and then turn around and don't actually open the door to anybody on what you saw that was so terrible that made you push yourself this way and imprinted you in an identity shaping way. Right? Like, because this is a part of who you are and you're a bit proud of being able to overcome the shit you overcame. Yeah. Um, we can do it again if you to- want. I don't want to push you into a place that you don't want to go, but it just seems like every once in a while you want to open that door and you you put your hand on the doorknob and then you walk away. Almost every time we do this exploration of, because you're crazy, the things you've done, Jason, you talk about a matter-of-factly, I think the catheter is the craziest thing you've done. The catheter, yeah. playing with a catheter and that when doctors are saying you shouldn't have done that and you were exposed, um, but everyone in that sport is a little bit different, but your Hall of Fame kind different
1: um yeah and and you're and and i'll be i'll be as candid as i can you know there there is you're right you're right about getting to that point and and turning away from it and i and i do that i've done it with you before and i do it with very few people is you know you're one of those guys that, that try to peel back layers and you have a very unique way of of making somebody comfortable and walking them to that point where they'll peel back layers. And I appreciate that. And that's what part of the reason why I love every time we, we talk, um, it took a long time for me to get past some of those things, some of those scars that I had, um, from past instances. And, and part of those, some of those things make you great. Some of those things take you to take you beyond where you should make you tougher, grittier, nastier, and I tell people now, I tell kids nowadays when I when I deal with them, sometimes the things that make you great in sports may be bad in life, or maybe made me very difficult to deal with at times in life because you, you can't, not everything translates across outside of those white lines. You know the insanity, the craziness, the the drive, the competitiveness, that nastiness, that that chip on your shoulder nastiness doesn't always work in life. Um, whether it be a marriage, whether it be in fatherhood, whether it be in friendships, or or just dealing with somebody in traffic or somebody at the gas station or that cuts you out, whatever. So, you know, I, I've done I've done a lot of I've, I've done a lot of work and tried to do a lot of healing and growing from some of those those dark things that I've dealt with. That's why I get to the door and let it go. I, I touch the doorknob, the doorknob's hot, so I'm like a kid with a, with a burning stove. You 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 touch it, you realize it's hot. And I just don't like i don't like going there anymore you know and I, but i' i'll always say the things that made me and i i hate saying this but the things that i'm trying to say it in a humble way but the things that made me a bad motherfucker on the football field made me sometimes a bad person off the field or not not a bad person but a bad person to deal with in certain situations or a bad person mentally because i was so i was so nasty and driven and focused on one singular thing so i, I try to I tapped into into it for years to play and be really good. I try to tap into it now for life lessons and and to not take me back to those bad things.
0: But it's such a mind fuck, right? To have so much of your Mm -hmm. identity get rewarded because you were a monster and you needed some of those things to build the confidence that made you stop being the guy who was bullied through fourth grade. All of the stuff that you're talking about that made you great, I could see how... I mean, you do amazing foundation work. You as a father attempt to be super, super present in the lives of your kids. But of course, some of the things that make you who you are as a Hall of Fame football player, they're not functional life skills on if you're never exploring, like, what damage did it do that my dad wasn't actually around? And what patterns am I recreating from the things that I saw that passed for love in my household?
1: Listen, I I, I try I have a thing I'm going to be, I want to be everything that my biological father wasn't. I will be everything that he wasn't to my kids. I don't want to be anything that he was. I don't want to be anything that my stepdad was to me. So I know I'm not, I'm not getting you to where you're, I'm not getting, I'm not getting to your point, but I use, I use all those bad things. Put it this way. if If you're, if you're bullied, abused, looked down on, spit upon, called, bad racist names, discriminated against, all the all the negative things that could happen in anybody's life that, that I experience as well, you can overcome all those things. Because if I overcame them, you can too. Or anybody else out there that's listening or watching can too. Because it's it's all about mindset. I know sometimes people's minds get more messed up than others when so people go through different kind of adversity and it's hard to come it's hard to get through that because maybe they don't have mentors. They don't have the mental makeup to get through it. They don't have any positivity or any foresight. You know, maybe it's no fault of their own, but those things don't define you. Those things don't bury you. You can overcome them all, but it's going to take a lot of work. And and sometimes you just got to fucking step on toes and kick down doors and roll people's asses.
0: And how do you get to the place that you are Jason Taylor Foundation moved to? I want to teach people to support their artistic side. I want people to know how to read. Why is this stuff important to you in a way that makes you pour this amount of time into it beyond you've told the story, Dan Marino opened a children's hospital. You saw it from one of your mentors, but you, I've seen some of your work in this community. It's intensely personal for you.
1: Yeah. Number one, cause there's a, there's a need there and there was a need. I don't know how old am I now? There was a, there was a need 40 years ago for a young mixed kid. In, in Pittsburgh, that was dealing with you know all the things we talked about, whether it be you know the the discrimination, the race, the racist stuff, the being looked down upon, living in a, living in a an area that was where you felt like those concrete walls were were the end was, was the end of your world, like you couldn't get outside of that. You know, dealing with uh, you know forty years ago, it wasn't it wasn't you know very popular. I guess it was popular, popular. I not the right word, but it wasn't very accepted. You know, to, to be Mixed with black and white in in certain in certain areas of the world, and particularly in, in the in the place that I grew up in, in Pittsburgh, and you know, hearing a name calling and all those kind of things, there was a there was a need for a kid forty years ago named named Jason Gibson at the time to get help to, to have somebody show love to help have somebody support them, to have somebody say, "Don't worry about that." That that person's ignorant for this that re- reason or the other. You can go somewhere else, and that was so having that need as a kid and, and understanding. I was now in a position when I got in the NFL to provide that for somebody else. That was the catalyst of it. But then as we start to more from you know an education-based foundation that really focused on after school reading and mentorship and all that, we still do that. But then the spoken word poetry came in, and that's, that's what you for, – for adults, that's what some adults pay for to sit down and speak to a therapist. That's the same thing these kids are getting with the spoken word poetry. They're not reading – they're not reading Shakespeare or, or Maya Angelou or anything else off, of, off a sheet of paper. They're sitting down and writing. Well, some of the ki- most kids nowadays are using their phone, but they're sitting down and, and they're, they're spilling their heart and their soul into their work and then standing up in front of complete strangers and spitting it out. And when you, we started doing that, you're like, Holy cow, where they're, where these, some of these kids are going, like they go way past where I'm going with you right now. You know, they're, they're opening up that door. They're opening up Pandora's box and letting out things that you had no idea. And it could be the happiest, jolliest kid in the world, and they're always smiling, and they're this, that. But then they they spew into a microphone about the abuse, the sexual assault, the bullying, the you know the things that they see and deal with on on a, on a daily basis in their in their lives. And that that was therapeutic for them. And then in a in a weird way, it was therapeutic for myself and and us adults as well. So. That was that's why so much of our foundation is kind of morphed into our, you know our poetry network is is so big now. What we do because it's it's what adults need, and we pay for, it, and sometimes aren't vulnerable enough to get help. These kids, we're giving them a free platform to do it. We're bringing out the artistic side of them. They're being celebrated for it. They're growing for it. They're getting more confidence. They're overcoming some of the, the shit that they they've had to deal with, and they learn that it's not okay. To for someone to do that to you, it's not okay to be in that situation. It is also not your fault. And then we're empowering them to move on forward and and turn kind of turn the page, you know, turn that page, or close that door to their past and be able to move on.
0: JasonTaylorFoundation.com is where you should go if you want more information because the work is very hands-on in the community, and he really is interested in helping young people maybe have some things that he didn't have. I noticed some hesitance from you. Perhaps I got this wrong, picked it up wrong. I have found that therapy in general is just wonderful. I've never understood the stigma to give you the tools to better understand yourself, that there's no shame in being able to, Hey, can I get some tools so that I can get to work on all the stuff in my past that I might not have known was dysfunctional or blind. You said, I've done a lot of work. I did not know what that meant. I can't imagine you being very good at asking for help though.
1: <laughs> um, no, I don't like asking for help, but pride come before the fall. Sometimes man, it's, it's, it's sometimes you need it, you know, when you're, You know, and you can make you know light of it. And you know, when you're one in fifteen, you need a lot of help. You need you need a lot of help. You need help under center. You need help in the backfield. You need help covering. You need help on the football field. You also need help dealing with it sometimes. You know, and and I've I've gotten help. I've had you know in house help with the with with the Dolphins. Or sometimes you just got to sit down with a with a a psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, your player development person. So I've sat and I've had long talks with John Gamble. I've, I've had long talks with Caleb Thornhill, who's still with, at the Dolphins. Um, I've had talks with guys that I looked up to as coaches and, and, you know, you just pull them aside, whether it be, you know, Dan Quinn, who I, you know, I reached out to Dan last night again, just to just to chat, but you know, guys like Dan Quinn is your coach. You know, you just you're dealing with something that you're having a hard time with. Um, I've gotten out, I've gotten outside uh, help with, with, a, with a therapist and a counselor and, doesn't do you any good if you're not willing to be vulnerable. And that, that was the biggest thing that I, I learned was like, she, you know, I'd, sat, I'd sit and talk to her and you know, we'd, it'd be an hour session, you know, two and a half, three hours later, she's like, okay, we, we just talked about a lot of shit, but we didn't talk about anything real. Like when, when you have to open up and it took time for me to start to open up and, and peel those layers back and expose, you know, be vulnerable to her. And it helps. There's nothing wrong with getting help folks. I mean, it, there really isn't. And a mental health thing is, is so... You know, it's come to the forefront now. People are starting to understand it, and I think that the negative stigma surrounding it is kind of going away. Um, you know, I look at someone like Brandon Marshall and the, and the great work he does with with trying to give a platform and, 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 and raise awareness to it. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I went through it. I went through it for professional reasons. I went through it for personal reasons. I went through it to stay sane through football sometimes because because it's hard sometimes to relate to other guys whose motivation isn't the same as yours. It's hard to relate sometimes to people accepting failure as, oh, well, we lost this one, we'll be back next week, we're still getting paid. Like, that was really hard for me. That was, that drove me crazy. I mean, and, and, you know, I remember sitting with Coach Saban at times in his office, and like, I, I can't fucking do this. I'm, I'm gonna go, I'm, I'm seriously about, about to put my hands around somebody's throat downstairs because this is the attitude. You know, how can you lose a game and leave the locker room in 10 minutes you're leaving the locker room before the media even gets in here. First of all, I don't want to talk to your sorry ass but, but how do you how are you over it that fast that you're gone in 10 minutes and then you're late to work the next day for meetings because your ass was on the beach all night like how is that okay? H- how do you accept just getting your fucking ass kicked on national TV and oh next week we'll get, we'll be back next week. I'm still getting paid like I, I just I had a really hard time with that.
0: Who cared as much as you did? Because you cared too much, and I know that it's part of why it is you were great, but who did you look at and say, that guy cares as much as I do? Because my lasting image of you, for all the greatness, Jason, is walking into the locker room again and again, and you were more broken. Mentally broken on those losses than anyone. Just hissing. A radiator hissing at your locker of sadness, <laughs> anger, rage, all of it. It's like it's your era of dolphin football. That excellence wasted. That caring wasted if if what we're looking at is Super Bowl victories is the title, or even playoff mm-hmm. victories, or the things that you were chasing.
1: You know, who cared? There was a lot of guys. I mean, there was guys that cared.
0: Um, no, like you. Okay. No, like you. Crazy cared, cared getting mad at teammates because Daryl Gardner doesn't care as much as you. Because it's one in fifteen, and three guys are dropping out because they don't want to play that weekend. Because for what? For who?
1: Zach, Zach Thomas for sure. Zach Thomas, you know, is he, the number one that he. It mattered a lot to him. It mattered a lot. Um, and there, there are probably others. Um, I, I think on that extreme level, I, I would. I'd have to say Zach was that was the one name. Not that, that
0: many though. That not mind. that Jason. Not that many. I don't. No, I, I'm not no. talking about bragging here. You're matter of fact about these things, but I I haven't met a lot that cared the way you did. I have not.
1: And, you, and you're right. There's there just there wasn't there wasn't many guys. And, and it didn't need to be extreme. It didn't need to be psycho extreme. Like, dude, chill out. It's over. It's an hour. The game's been over for an hour and a half. Take your pads off and relax. Stop breaking stuff. Like it didn't need to be to that point. So we had guys that, that, that cared. We had some guys that didn't give a shit that it seemed like, but there was one or two of us that, that it really mattered to. And that was, you know, and and Nick Saban, Nick Saban helped me a lot. You know, I know people down here, Nick Saban is, you know, very frowned upon and, and, uh, I you know, mean, he's I a love, great I leader. He's a
0: great leader. You were defensive great. player of the year with him, and you and well, see, but it' easy for you though, Jason. You cared the way he did. Like, of course, he was yeah. good to you. I mean, he was still telling you to tie your te- uh, you know, your sneakers during walkthrough, and you didn't have much use for that. But that dude cared in the obsessive, compulsive way about excellence that you did.
1: Yes, and so we were, we were one and the same. Like we were, you know people call him an asshole or he was an asshole. He was, he was my asshole. I loved him. And we, we, we saw, we saw eye to eye in so many ways. And to this day, he's still, I still love him to death. I, you know, I actually spoke to him last night. Um, we were, we talked on the phone last night and he's one of the things he told me is, and, and it sounds so simple and I still, I have it written down still. And I think matter of fact, it's in my car, mediocre people don't like high achievers and high achievers cannot freaking stand mediocre people. So it's just he's like, you're not going to get along with this guy because you guys don't see it the same way. You're a high achiever. He's almost mediocre, Some be, but it was below mediocre. Like you can't you could try to pull bring him along with you. He's like, but you you pushing him isn't going to do it. Sometimes you just got to tell him, hit your wagon to the back of me and, and I'll and I'll take you as far as I can. But at some point, he's going to fall off because he can't go that high. So that was a big, and that kind of put it in, in perspective a little bit for me. It helped me out a little bit, but it's so true, man. Mediocre people cannot stand high achievers, and high achievers freaking hate mediocre people.
0: You mentioned vulnerability. Do you know what it is or where it is or how it is that you realized, oh, wait a minute, me being vulnerable with others is actually something I need to be doing. I'm not going to have meaningful relationships or connection points if I don't show people beyond the camouflage and show them like the real stuff that I don't want to show anybody.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't remember exactly when it was, but as you get older and as I got later in my career, you know, sometimes you're so worried about saying something off color, not off color, but you're saying something, in, in, you know, in an interview that that isn't the coach speak or, you know, you you, you don't want to say anything before, before podcasts were big, you know, you know, now we kind of can sit down and be comfortable. You know, you're always wanting to say the company line and, you know, move on the next week and all this, all this stuff that I that I used to hear you always say on the radio, how you couldn't stand, oh, here comes the coach speak. You're kind of, you're kind of taught that in a way, you know, the, the culture kind of pushes you in a way to say that. So I've always felt like that was the way it had to be. You can't really step outside the box. You can't really say what you want. And I abided by that until I got to the boiling point after a loss, and then sometimes I would dispute. I would just blow up, or in the locker room, I would be myself and blow up. But you, you get such superficial relationships with people when, when your football career or your greatness on, the, on in your sport is the main catalyst of your friendship, or or dominates the conversation at, at dinner, or dominates the conversation at you know at an event. Like yeah okay you were a great football player tell me about when you played the, the Cowboys or you played the the Buffalo Bills and like you could only go so far with that and then those friendships you you know players don't want to be around someone that constantly talks football all the time you do, you want something bigger you want let's talk about business let's talk about politics let's talk about everything that people say you shouldn't talk about politics or religion anything besides just freaking football you know and you realize that if you're not if you're not willing to peel back and really show who you truly are to the closest ones to you then you hit that wall and you just, you just, there's no real meaningful relationship there. So as you start to go outside the box, talk about your, you know, your upbringing a little bit, or you talk about something besides football and, you know, you, you drop an F bomb every once in a while in a conversation. And even you do it, I do it in, the, in events. Sometimes I'll be speaking, you know, sometimes, the, the, you know, having a little levity being self-deprecating and being real go so far. And I see it so much now when in coaching, you know, it's, Kids see through that stuff, you know. The coach speak, the, the, the being the fake, trying to put on a persona. People see through that. Players see through that, and pro players see through it. Be real, and if, not everybody's Nick Saban, not everyone's Bill Belichick. But don't try to be that. If that's not you, just just be real. I just think it's so more, ende- so much more endearing, and I think it's it, you get you get guys to really to to really love you and, and appreciate you for who you are, and then it, it's, it's so much more fulfilling.
0: Any place along your career where you wish you had spoken more freely and not towed the company line?
1: <laughs> probably i mean probably i can't i can't maybe when i was in when i was in washington i probably should have spoken up more um i was new i got traded there and felt like even though you're an established veteran and, and have, have a, a big resume you know you're new to it to an area so you feel like you should take a little bit of vaccine so probably should have spoke up more there so that's that's one thing that comes to mind for sure I, I did a bit more at the jets even though we didn't need it you know we had a very we had a very outspoken coach that I thought did a really good job in a strong locker room. But, you know, my first, and really, it was until Nick Saban got here. And I did a little bit when, when coach wants that was when Dave was the coach, but not as much as I should. And that was one of the things that coach Saban challenged, challenged me early on in 2005 when he first got here. He was like, look, if you're going to be a leader, you can't be everybody's best friend. You've got to, sometimes you've got to step on toes. Sometimes you've got to jump somebody's ass. Sometimes you got to put your arm around the guy that everyone doesn't want on the team. And. Bring them a little closer and help them out too. So it's it's not always just being being an asshole. Sometimes it's it's you know it's it's it's, it's taking care of somebody and cuddling somebody sometimes and nurturing them sometimes. But he's like you got to stop being afraid to to step on toes. And you know because you want to be liked, you want your teammates to respect you and love you and all. J, Jt's a great teammate and all that. But again, that only goes so far if you're not real. When Coach Saban kind of unleashed, I guess, the beast in me. Sometimes I'm not, I'm not afraid to. I was never afraid at that from that point on to, to step on somebody's toes if they weren't doing what they needed to do.
0: Can you give me a good one? I know you're probably not gonna give me a name, but give me a good one that you remember of like, Well, that felt good. I was a leader and I got I really got up into somebody. I, I lit somebody up and it felt good.
1: <laughs> you're an ass, you're an asshole
0: come on man, Like I'd prefer if you'd give me the name, that'd be even better but you always give me the honest stuff man, and now you, there are no consequences, like you have been very good about articulating to this audience what this world is like, because I don't think they understand it, and I don't think that we have any access to how it is that you are, what it takes to be as good as what you were and so I flattered you enough. Give me the story.
1: <laughs> all right. Let me. <laughs> all right. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you a name. All right. I'm all right. You, there I'm gonna,
0: you go. No consequences I, I, I outside of your own personal relationships, which I may destroy. But I'm trying to give this all the context. Exactly. I'm I'm badgering him for the story. And he doesn't want to tell it. He's telling it reluctantly of Jason Taylor learning how to be a later, leader because it was just required by Nick Saban so that he could grow as a uh, Hall of Fame football player.
1: There was just things that needed to be said, and it can't always come from the head coach. And sometimes, and again, I don't want people to think that I was a total dickhead out there and yelling at everybody, because that wasn't the case. I was I was a great teammate, fun, happy. That's, as long as we worked hard and we did our job. I was all about having fun, but sometimes shit had to be said. So let me get in front of my chair here. Um, 2005, we're playing. We were not we were not very good. Nick Saban was was the first year here, his first year here. We're playing the Cleveland Browns up in Cleveland. Zach Thomas ended up getting hurt that game, and they weren't very good. They, they, um, we weren't very good either. But so we're playing up there. Second or third quarter, I think it was third quarter. We had a rookie named Matt Roth. Great, great guy. Didn't really understand the defense yet. We're still learning. Crazy he, meathead. He, he
0: crazy meathead.
1: Big time from from Iowa. Yeah, he'll run through a brick wall if you tell him. He'll run straight through a brick wall. But if he had to make a right or a left, you're gonna have to <laughs> you have to put breadcrumbs down. <laughs> so we're staying there during a TV timeout in the field. Matt's coming in the game. We're jogging from the sideline, and I'm like, I pointed back to sideline. I was like, Get the fuck! What are you? You're not get out of here. You're not playing. He's like, No, coach sent me in. I'm like, Get your ass out of the game. And, you know, Matt's a rookie, so he, like, he stops, he turns and jogs back. And Dan Quinn was our D-line coach. So Dan Quinn, I can see Dan, like, tell him to go back. And Matt Roth, he's still between – he's, like, between the the, the numbers and the sideline. He's just, like, going back and forth during a TV timeout. Dan's telling him to go back. I'm telling him to get the fuck off the field. Finally, he comes in the huddle. He's like – I was like, what are you doing? He's like, Co-, he's like, coach keeps sending me in here because this player came, took himself out. And I'm like – Whatever. So they're breaking. about to break the huddle. I'm like, you better not fuck this up. So we, we go through the series, go to the sideline, and this player's on the sideline. And I'm like, dude, what's up with you? You hurt? He's like, ah, oh, he gave me some BS. And I'm like, the fuck are you doing? Like, we were still in the game. It was like 13 and nothing. We still in the game. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, okay, whatever. I go sit down. Fourth quarter. He's still not in the game. So TV timeout. Matt Roth runs his happy ass back on the field. And I'm like, hold on. So we got a TV timeout. So I walk in the sideline and Dan Quincy's has coming and Dan's like giving me this. And this is before the blue tents and all that. Like if, if you're hurt, you should be getting attended to or you get your ass back in the game. So I go over to the player in the sideline and I'm yelling from the sideline. He's really big. So I didn't want to get too close to him. I'm, I'm I'm just giving it to him I'm like, What the? Hell? and I'll give you the name later trust me <laughs> maybe and I'm yelling at him. I go back on the field anyway we lose the game so we go in the locker room after the game we lose 20 to nothing I think I shut out we go in the locker room and Coach Saban had this thing where he'd come in he'd tell everyone to take a knee he wanted everybody on the knee he was he had that that was like the kind of the college thing of him because most times in the NFL guys are standing or whatever when the coach is talking he says bring it up take a knee everyone takes a knee and he had yelled at somebody in weeks past about not taking a knee I wasn't taking a knee. I was in the back, and I'm steaming. I'm just, like, pacing behind, behind the, the, the circle of guys, you know, or the semicircle of guys that are around Coach. The Coach does his thing. talks. He was never real, real long, talked for a minute or two. And he's never done this. But I was steaming in the back, and he goes, anybody else got anything? Well, he knew I had something. He knew, he knew that I wanted to blow up. Anybody else got something? So there was a helmet on the ground. I take the helmet and I just fire it into this Gatorade machine. There was a Gatorade cooler by the train between the, two, before the showers were on this side, the training rooms on this side. There was a Gatorade cooler. I just fire this helmet into the, into the Gatorade machine, just shattered the glass and there's shit all over the ground. And as I'm starting to walk around the, the back of the group to go up front, because I had something to say, I was going to just let it go. Because sometimes I, I let it build up and then I just explode. So I'm trying to walk around the group. There's like this much room. I'm still in my pads and everything. There's like this much room between the the back of the group of guys and this table that had like the wheel call tickets, the bubble gum, all the little shit. And then this big, this big ass bun. I think that's how you say it. Bun coffee maker, like the big coffee maker. So as I'm going, table's not really in my way, but fuck it. I'm already, I'm already balls deep in it. I might as well. I just take the table and I freaking flip the table. Coffee machine flies the the little beaker of coffee breaks and it it, it shatters and splashes all over the back of Matt Roth because he's in the back because the rookies are in the back. So it's like burning Matt's back, but he's afraid to yell out anything because I'm going off. So I just start screaming about guys quitting on us and if you don't want to fucking be here. I'm going on and on and on for about five minutes. And I was like, if you don't want to fucking be here, We'll give you a ride home tonight. You can get on the plane. We'll give you a ride back to Miami. But when we get back, let's fucking leave. And I'll pay your salary the rest of the season. I'll, whoever y'all just pay your fucking salary. I'd rather you not be here. So we get done. I do the thing that you've seen for so many years. I'm sitting in my locker forever. I do the media. I think Harvey. I think Harvey and the guys kept me away for a little while, and then they finally let me do the media. So it's time for me to get a shower. I go in the shower. There's a few. There's a few young guys still in the shower, like two or three. And I felt like Debo from Friday for a second. So I, I walk in, like they see me come in, like, like they grab their shit and leave. Like, they still got soap on them. They're like, they walk off. I'm like, I'm like, hey, you, you got soap on your back. And they're like, oh, I'm all right. I'm all right. They just walk out. So is I it, is it just
0: your rage or is it also who you're challenging specifically? Because there were a couple of guys to be feared, even if they might have not had quite your mental spirit.
1: Uh, I think it was a rage and then every I think most people knew who I was talking about um, cuz I didn't name the name when I was going off but I was staring a hole through room so it was it was the rage and I'm mean, I'm not Tim Bowens or Daryl Gardner where I'm physically imposing but they're like JT's on one stay the hell away cuz I don't want him hitting me with a coffee coffee machine or Gatorade or whatever so I go in the, when we get done I get I get dressed I go into the into the equipment room so Joey and Charlie and those guys are in there, still packing up, getting ready to load the buses up. And they used to always have leftovers from halftime, whether it be hot dogs and shit, whatever. So I'm in there, getting a, I'm getting a hot dog. So Zach's in there. Zach I think is on crutches because he got hurt that game, and that was part of me going off. I was so pissed off that Zach was hurt. He's in there trying to play, and we got guys fucking quitting. So I got a I'm I'm, eating, I'm getting a hot dog. I remember I got a hot dog and I take the foil off the freaking Cleveland hot dog it was probably made 12 years ago. And I'm putting ketchup on it. And I'm standing there with Zach, who's on crutches. Charlie Field was in there. Joey Tamino, And then Bonnie Holiday was there. So I'm bitching to Bonnie. I'm like, can you believe that so-and-so did that? And as I'm doing it, Bonnie's like, Bonnie's giving me a look like, chill. I didn't realize this person was walking up behind me. So he walks up behind me, gets a hot dog, and he was like... JT, I, I'm so glad you said that shit. He's like, it needed to be said. These guys got to stop. <laughs> and Bonnie, Bonnie Holiday bear hugs me and picks me up and carries me. He's like, just go, just go. He took Bonnie took me out of the, the equipment room, into the into the, the hallway, got my bag and made me leave, walked me to the bus. So we get to the airplane. I'm, we take, as soon as we take off, I'm up in the front galley. I got, a, I got a drink. I'm up in the front galley and I'm still steaming. Channing Crowder walks up. And he was like, hey, um, JT, I, you know, I know you were, had a moment there. Channing's a rookie at the time, by the way. Channing's like, hey, uh, I know you had a moment there. I, I, you know, I don't, I don't mean any disrespect. He's like, you know, I, I look up to you. You're like, you're, you're my dog. I, I, I just wanted to clarify real quick. He's like... And don't take this the wrong way. But he's like, Were you serious about like if when we get back, if we quit, are you serious about paying the rest of our salary?
0: He was negotiating.
1: Yeah. Was- so I so I was, I was like, Channing, this ain't the time, Channing, just go sit down. This ain't the time. And then and then two minutes later, Kevin Carter walks up front. And he was and he was like, Hey, I know you were talking to me. I'm sorry. I apologize. I was just, you know, my back was hurt. Whatever it was was hurting. He's like, would you, would, "You said what needed to be said." He was like, "I, I really thought you were going to call me out in front of everybody, but I appreciate you not doing." Wow. It. I'm like, "KC, hey, everyone knows who it was," and he was like, "It'll never happen again." And then we went on to win six straight. And it's not, we didn't win six straight because of that, but we just, we we needed to get that shit out. That
0: is pretty cool story though, because I'm sure he respected it. This is a guy who led the league in, in sacks one year, right? He yeah. got there like, yeah. so that when you're doing that, you're one of the few people who could actually see whether he was trying or not, because you knew how good he could be at the top end of what he did. Right.
1: And it was, it was, uh, it was a moment and it was, it was good. I mean, I, I remember Jason Garrett came to me at the end of the season. Jason Garrett was on the staff, you know, before he we went to Dallas, became the head coach. And he was like, that's one of the greatest. One of the greatest things I've ever seen in a locker room, and we absolutely needed that. And our and our team. He's like, you weren't even talking to an offensive player. He's like, but there was three or four offensive players I could have given you the name that they were doing the same thing, and we absolutely needed to have it. So that that was that was one of the uh, bad ones.
0: We're gonna let you go on that note, but I want to clean up a handful of things here with you at the very end. I had a catheter in your arm accidentally, and Mike Ryan said it's a pick line, not a catheter. Although I can imagine yes. Jason Taylor uh, playing with a catheter in his armpit and his penis everywhere. You had him playing with a catheter <laughs> in his dickhole. Yeah, I, I did. yeah.
1: N- next next time we do this, we'll talk about the pick line in my heart. Yeah
0: yeah just crazy also that coaching staff was crazy right you've got uh this this coaching staff kirby smart was on that coaching staff too right
1: yeah nick nick saban kirby smart will Muschamp, dan quinn dom capers i mean we had we had a squad
0: and i want uh the title of this episode to be uh jason taylor and then a colon nick saban was my asshole is what I want. But I, I I just want that to get aggregated. And people to be confused by it. I just uh, I always it's going to be weird. I always say this genuinely, Jason. It's been true uh, I think since the first time that I talked to you, and certainly pretty close. I always enjoy the time. It is a pleasure. I don't say that uh, flippantly. It is always a pleasure that you allow us access to the the dark and rage filled mind uh, that produced such excellence for the Miami Dolphins over so many years. Thank you for showing us that side of yourself
1: anytime i always enjoy talking to you and you know what it's, it, it's uh I, I love the conversations we have because you always dig deep you have a way of unpeeling layers but i do have to clear up one thing because i was listening to a to your podcast uh actually this morning on the way to the golf course i'm with you and david Samson is, is freaking out of his mind a coach should never put his fucking hands on a player ever <laughs> i don't care i don't care what i i i I was in the car steaming. I, I was acting like you were on the on the radio live, like I wanted to call in. But I'm like, how is it, how are you justifying what Bruce Arians did? Now I get you don't want to get in a fight and get a flag or whatever. Teammates can grab each other, but that wasn't a good, that was a hit. David Sampson, come here. You stand in front of me. I'm gonna do what what Bruce Arians did to him. And you tell me if I just hit you or if it was a love tap. My ass. She, bring your I, – I, I respect David Sampson, but next time I see him, I'm going to be like – when I walk up, I'm not going to shake his hand. I'm going to do that across his head and be like, oh, I didn't hit you. I was just saying hello.
0: Well, okay, I, I, I don't I, – it's the disrespect that bothers you the most, right? Like it's just that <laughs> – like I've always been offended by the idea that someone like you would need something like that. That's not coaching. That's not helpful.
1: No. And, and like you said, if, if he turns around in the heat of, and you, Bruce Arians can't say it's the heat of the moment. Listen, I love Bruce Arians. I think he's a great coach and great dude. But oh, I, I just didn't hit the moment. Well, what happens if that player turns around in the heat of the moment and puts your ass to sleep? Then he's probably going to be in Antonio Brown's music video next week over there with him out of the league. Like, no, that's, that's wrong.
0: I didn't even ask you about Antonio Brown because your prism, I, I'd be fascinated as a professional, right? You were always a pillar of professionalism. You didn't have any bad, did you have any bad public moments? Maybe going back and forth with Parcells is the worst of it and Parcells wronged you. But I can't even imagine how you experience watching Antonio Brown doing all of that, uh, making a fool of himself at the end of or in the middle of a game.
1: Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. If we ever do this again, All right, <laughs> I could take on another 15 minutes and we will do a sales episode in a Cam Cameron episode. And
0: all right, I'm going to welcome you go. back for all of that. See you later. See you later.
1: All right. Go Tigers.
0: <laughs> Our thanks to Jason Taylor and a reminder to support all of the things on the Levitard and friends network. If you want this stuff to keep coming to you, we don't expect you To listen to all of it, but we do want to provide a number of different options for you. So, you've got Bob Weir from The Grateful Dead on Stupidity. He calls it a thrill of a lifetime. I encourage you to check that out. Amin Hassan is doing a lot of work on Mystery Crate about the Star Wars Boba Fett series. And if you're interested in Star Wars, I suggest that you check that out. Thank you for supporting this. And thank you for supporting Montgomery & Company. For supporting Off the Looking Glass. For supporting... The podcast with Mike Shore and Joe Poznansky. Please, Levitard and Friends Network, support the people who support
2: us. My team is one win away. And I'll tell you exactly what I'm going to do to celebrate once they get past this series. I'm going to go to my fridge and I'm going to get myself an ice cold can of Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years, but one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and it still hasn't been settled. You see, Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. A light beer that tastes like beer, less filling, and only 96 calories. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller Time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brew & Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories for 12 ounces. fewer calories and carbs and premium regular beer.